Jill and I spent the last week relaxing in Myrtle Beach, and um, we basically just lounged around and didn't do anything exciting because, well, we're unstoppable and we couldn't afford to do much, but um, relaxing by the ocean is a wonderfully refreshing thing for me. It's just a wonderful, refreshing thing for me, and while I was lounging on the beach, I'm pretty sure I heard very clearly, very, very clearly, the call of God to open Impact Myrtle Beach, <laughs> or maybe Impact Maui, you know, and, um, <laughs> and so I don't know, I, I'll test that, but it would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? But before we left, I had put together an outline of what I was going to say this weekend, and then Jill and I went to visit a wonderful church in Myrtle Beach, a church that has converted a grocery store into a church building, and uh, it, uh, if that sounds familiar, it should, but um, the pastor there preached a message that almost perfectly fit with this series and will end it well. So I told him when we left that I was probably going to borrow some of his ideas today, and he gave me permission to do that, and I changed it a great deal, but I'm using his general outline, and so I wanted to give him credit, and I don't do that very often, but when I do, I don't feel bad about it because I know a few pastors use my sermons each week. As In fact, a while back, we had um, a friend of mine frantically called because uh, the message hadn't gone online yet and he needed to preach it Sunday. And so um, I had to help him with that. And uh, I'm fine with them using my stuff as long as they try to make it better when they use it. And so, but today's message is called Lifetime Impact. So I want you to think for a minute and I want you to think of who has had a lifetime impact on you. Now, that could be negative or it could be positive, but let's focus on the positive today. Let's push aside the fact that some people have negatively affected us for a lifetime, and let's focus on those who have had a positive lifetime impact on our life. Think about that for a few minutes. And I want to tell you, I could tell you about many. I could tell you about my parents, and I could tell you about professors in Bible college and pastors in my churches growing up. But what I want to talk to you about and tell you about is my grandpa, Hammer. Hal Hammer was a wonderful Christian man. And I mean, he loved the Lord. He served his church. He was a leader in his church for years. And he also did all sorts of repair work around his church. He was a great Christian man. And when he found out that I had uh, felt called and planned to be a pastor, he uh, just brightened up so much. And every time we would go to his house, I was 14 at the time, every time he'd give me some Christian books that had influenced him. And he would begin to cut things out of magazines that he thought might be inspirational quotes. I'd get these really bizarre, thick envelopes full of just things that were cut out of magazines, articles. And, and then every once in a while, he'd get a bright idea and he would sit down and he'd write it all out, uh, sometimes on really interesting stationery, whatever he could find. And his handwriting was atrocious and really hard to read, but he'd send all this to me and it was a wonderful thing. He was a great encourager of me. 
And um, in addition to the heritage of Christian faith and the encouragement that I received, he also made a lifetime impact on me through a gift he gave me. The very first trip that I took to the Holy Land was paid for by my grandpa Hal. I tried to get him to go with me, but he thought that he was too old to go at the time, and so instead he paid for me to go. And that trip changed my life. It changed how I read the Bible and how I understood the Bible because I had been there and seen many of the places we read about in the Bible. And it also changed my worldview as I saw the culture and met different people and made many friends there in uh, Israel. And that has had a lifetime impact on me. The money that he spent had a lifetime impact on me. So who has had a lifetime impact on you? It might be a parent or a pastor who led you to Jesus, or it could be a person who helped you overcome an addiction, or it could be a person who loved you through a really difficult time in your life. You know, more than anything else, I want our church to continue to be a place that has lifetime impacts on people. For the last 47 years, this church has been serving this community and we have been impacting this community and we're about to continue to build on that legacy in new and different ways. As we open the landing and as we invite the community to come in and just enjoy a safe place, a family-friendly place for recreation and for relationship building, I know that some of those people who come in just to run around on a soccer field or walk on a track that they will be asking some questions about Jesus. And some will try our services. And as a result, they will find the hope and the help that only Jesus can give. And I am praying for revival in our community. I'm praying that in this time of hate, in this time of hopelessness, in this time of division in our world, that impact will be a place where people can experience hope and love. I'm praying for revival uh, in the area of joy and a revival of mercy and a revival of grace and a revival of acceptance. And that will happen when we let God love us and when we let him love others through us. It will happen when we focus not on being a better church, not on being a bigger church, not on being a cooler church, but when we focus on letting Jesus love others through us. And this was a pretty important thing to Jesus. This was pretty important to him. Look at what he said just before he was arrested and crucified. In John chapter 13, we read this. I give you a new command, love each other. You must love each other as I have loved you. All people will know that you are my followers if you love each other. People will know, they'll recognize that we belong to Jesus. They will be drawn to Jesus when we get good at loving each other like Jesus loved us. His love through us will make a lifetime impact on people. And in this series, we've been trying to emphasize that serving people really isn't an option if you're a Christ follower. 
It's not something that you, uh, it, that's nice to do if you have a little extra time. It's something Jesus expects each of us as his followers to rearrange our schedule, to make time to serve him by serving other people. And Jesus is pretty serious about us serving him and serving his church. Matthew 24 talks about what will happen when Jesus comes back in his kingdom. And then in Matthew 25, Jesus tells three stories about what it will be like when Jesus comes back. And in the process, he teaches us what we should be doing. And when you look at it, it seems like it really might not be three separate stories after all. They seem to build on each other. They seem to teach us some important truths about letting God love me and love others through me. They give us some hints on how to have a lifetime impact. I have some props up here, and uh, they will help us as we look at these three stories in Matthew 25. In story number one, Jesus tells us that we need to love God. He tells us that we need to love God. And you can read these verses later. I'm not going to read all of the stories. I'll tell them to you. But I've listed all of the verses so that you can read them later. But to understand this first story, you will need to understand something about wedding culture in the time of Jesus. In the time of Jesus, wedding celebrations would begin when the groom left his house and went to the bride's house. And bridesmaids had been helping the bride get ready all day long. That still happens today, doesn't it? Bridesmaids all gather around. The bride takes all day long to get beautiful and be ready to get married. The groom takes about 20 minutes, you know, and uh, might shave, you know, I, I don't know. But the bride has been uh, pampered all day by her bridesmaids, and she's beautiful. But when she's all ready, the bridesmaids in, in Jesus' day would go out, and they would wait for the groom and the groomsmen to come to the bride's house. And when they came to the bride's house, on the way, the bridesmaids would join the parade, there, there was really a parade. And in the parade, each person would have one of these. They would have an oil lamp like this. This is an actual oil lamp. This one dates to the Iron Age, from, uh, about 500 uh, B.C. But there would be a wick here. You would have oil in here. And everyone in this parade would have an oil lamp or maybe a torch, but usually an oil lamp. It was a pretty important thing. They would light the way as the groom would come to the bride's house. The bride would see the lights coming in the distance for the parade, and it was a pretty cool thing. And the oil lamp was a pretty important thing because if you were in the parade and you didn't have a torch or an oil lamp, everyone knew you were a wedding crasher, okay? So it was pretty important. So with that in mind, let's talk about Jesus' story. In Jesus' story, he says 10 bridesmaids were waiting for the groom, and five were foolish. They had the oil lamp, but they had not brought extra oil for the oil lamp. But 10 were wise. They had the oil lamp and the extra oil with them. And apparently the groom was later than anyone expected, because while the 10 bridesmaids were waiting for the groom, they all fell asleep. 
And about midnight, Jesus says, the announcement went out that the bridegroom was on his way. And the bridesmaids all woke up and the five foolish bridesmaids figured out that they were out of oil. And so they asked the wise bridesmaids to loan them some of their extra oil, but the wise bridesmaids were wise. Jesus said so. And so they knew that they needed their oil for their lamps. And so they said to the foolish bridesmaids, go into town and buy yourself some oil so that you can join the parade. And while they were away buying oil, the bridegroom came, the parade took place, they got to the bride's house and the doors were closed. And that's when the five foolish bridesmaids showed up. And they knocked on the door. And the bridegroom said to them, they said, open the door for us. And the bridegroom said, I don't really know you. I don't really know you. Now, the bridegroom in this story represents Jesus. And the wise bridesmaids are the true followers of Jesus who really know him and love him. And they're ready for him to show up. And the foolish ones are those who really like the party. They're really excited about the reception. They like the party, but they aren't really committed to the bridegroom. And they enjoy the benefits of church without true love and without a true commitment to Jesus. And therefore, they're not ready when Jesus says it's time. And to those people, Jesus says, I don't really know you. I don't really know you. You know what? I don't want anyone in this room to hear Jesus say, I don't really know you. I have committed my life to helping people know Jesus and to helping them ensure that Jesus knows them when he shows up. And I don't want you to not be ready when Jesus the bridegroom shows up. And that's what Jesus was warning about in this story. He says, we always need to be ready because we don't know when he'll show up. We don't know when he'll show up. So if we always want to be ready, how can we do that? How do I know if I'm ready? Well, let's go to story number two. In story number two, Jesus tells us that we need to love God and do something. We need to love God and do something. Here's the story Jesus tells. A wealthy man is getting ready to go on a long trip. And uh, so he calls his servants in and he entrusts them with his wealth according to their ability. To the first one, he gives five bags of gold. To the second one, he gives two bags of gold. And to the third one, he gives just one bag of gold. And the um, servants, uh, the first two guys, immediately go out and they use the money to try to earn more money. And the third guy takes his one bag of gold and he digs a hole in the ground and he hides that bag of gold really, really well. He hides it really, really well. Now, fast forward several years, the wealthy man returns after a long time, and he calls in his servants to settle his accounts. And the first guy says, Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold, and I have gained five more. 
And the master says to him, well done. You are a good and a loyal servant, and I'm going to entrust you with even more. The second guy comes and says, you gave me two bags of gold, and I have gained two more. And the master says, well done. You are good, and you are loyal, and I'm going to entrust you with even more. And the third guy comes in, and he says, Master, I knew you to be a harsh man. I knew that you harvested where you did not plant. And I was afraid, so I took the one bag of gold, and I hid it really well. And I protected it really well, and here it is. And the master said, you are wicked, and you are lazy, and you're useless. He said, if you knew I was a harsh man who harvested where I didn't plant, at the very least, you could have put the money in the bank and it would have earned some interest. And then he said, I want you to take that one bag of gold from that wicked, lazy, useless servant and give it to the guy with 10 bags of gold. And then I want that wicked, lazy, useless guy out of here. That's Jesus' second story. That's a second story. And um, I want you to notice the words that Jesus used with each of them. To those who put what they had to use, to those who did something with what they were given, Jesus said, well done. And he described them as good and loyal. He said, well done. And then he said, you are good and loyal servants. But to the third guy... Jesus calls him wicked and he describes him with two words, lazy and useless. Now, there's not many places you want to hear those two words, okay? You do not want to go to a parent-teacher conference and have the teacher say, well, you know, I, I hate to tell you this, but your child is lazy and useless. You don't want that, do you? You don't want your next evaluation for the boss to say, well, I've really got two words to describe you, lazy and useless. You don't want to hear that from a coach. You don't want to hear that from a parent. And I certainly don't want to hear it from Jesus. I certainly don't want Jesus to say that I'm lazy and useless. And Jesus is saying, I've given you gifts, and I want you to use them. I want you to invest them. He is saying, you can't just bury your gifts. You can't just sit on your gifts. So think about it for a minute. Based on what you're doing with what God has entrusted to you, how would Jesus describe you? I want Jesus to describe me as good and loyal, not lazy and useless. I want to hear him say, well done. Well done. So how do we make sure we hear those words when Jesus returns? Well, let's move to story number three. In story three, Jesus tells us we need to love God and do something by loving people. Now, some of you have been sitting there and you've been thinking, is that a toilet plunger up there on that table? Well, yes. Yes, it is. It's a toilet plunger. 
And some of you will be comforted to know that it's brand new and has never been used. Because this table's moving back to the cafe after this message, and you're worried that this toilet plunger has been on this table, and, uh, but it's never been used, okay? So now why, why do we have a toilet plunger as a prop? Well, if you remember, when Jesus was trying to teach his followers to be servants, he washed their feet, because washing their feet was the dirtiest, most disgusting job that was reserved for the lowest household servant. And so I was trying to figure out what would be comparable in our culture. And I kind of think clearing clogged toilets might be comparable in our culture. And so I decided we would have a brand new, never been used plunger <laughs> as our illustration. At the end of Matthew 25, Jesus talked about what the judgment day would look like. And I'll let you read the passage for yourself later, but let me tell you what he said. He said that when he comes in glory, when he comes in power, all of the people of all the nations will be gathered in front of him and he will separate them like a shepherd separates sheep and goats. And to the group on his right, he will say, come on in. Enjoy the blessings of heaven that God has prepared for you. Because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was alone and away from home, you invited me into your house and when I was naked, you gave me something to wear. And when I was sick, you cared for me. And when I was in prison, you came to visit me. And according to Jesus, the people on his right are going to be a little confused at that point. They're going to say, wait, Lord, when did this happen? When did we see you hungry and give you something to eat? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When in the world did we see you naked and give you clothes? When were you alone and away from home and we let you stay at our house? When were you sick or in prison and we took care of you? And Jesus will respond to tell you the truth. When you were serving people here on earth, especially the most unpopular people in your line of sight, you were doing it for me. You were doing it for me. And then it says that Jesus will turn to the people on his left. Sorry about that. Bet you're wishing you sat on the other side of the room <laughs> right now. And he will say, and I quote here, go away from me. You will be punished. Go into the fire that burns forever that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Because I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was alone and away from home and you did not invite me into your home. I was without clothes and you gave me nothing to wear. I was sick and in prison and you did not care for me. Jesus says this group's going to be confused too. Because they're going to say, wait, 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 Jesus. When in the world did that happen? 
When did we see you hungry and refuse to give you something to eat? When did we see you thirsty and not give you a drink of water? When were you alone and away from home and we didn't invite you in or sick and in prison or naked and we didn't care for you? Lord, we never would have done that to you. We always would have helped you. And Jesus will say, when you refuse to do it for the least of my people, you were refusing to do it for me. Jesus is saying something very clearly here. Write this down. He is saying that loving people equals serving people. Loving people equals serving people. You see, we can claim to love people. We can say with our lips that we love people, that we are uh, compassionate and love people, but we really don't love people the way that Jesus has called us to until we get involved using the talents and the gifts and the resources that God has given to us to help them and to serve them, to make a difference in their lives. Because loving people equals serving people. But maybe the more important part of the equation that we pick up from what Jesus is teaching here is this. Serving people equals loving Jesus. Serving people equals loving Jesus. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying, if you don't serve people, you don't love him. If you don't serve people, you don't love him. Here's the bottom line of what Jesus is saying in these three stories. Your love for Jesus is measured by your love for people. Your love for Jesus is measured by your love for people. Now, there's a real beauty in that. There's a real beauty in that bottom line, and that's this. It's clearly defined, and it's easy to do. It's not hard. It's clearly defined, and it's really easy to do. If I want to really love Jesus, I just have to get good at loving other people and serving them. That's really simple. Isn't that beautiful? In fact, Jesus very clearly states that when we love others, we're loving him. And what we do for others, we're doing for Jesus. That means so much. You remember a few weeks ago when we all joined together as a congregation and built three houses together in a few short hours? You remember when we did that? Would you like to know who's living in those houses? Jesus is. Jesus lives there. That's what this says. When we built homes for three families, we built homes for Jesus. You remember a year, two years ago when we packed 75,000 meals for people in Haiti. Do you know who's eating those meals in Haiti today? Jesus is. Jesus is. There are people downstairs wiping snotty noses and putting up with kids running all over because they've had too much candy. And do you know who those kids are? Jesus. Someone is changing Jesus's diaper in the nursery. Okay, maybe we're going a little far on that. But. <laughs> and when you give to Unstoppable, you give so Jesus will be able to be helped in areas all around the world through our missions, budgets, and so that Jesus 
We'll have a community center to come to and hear a dangerous message in a really safe place and so that Jesus can sit in this room or in growth groups and gain hope and help and forgiveness. You see, whenever we love people by serving and giving, we're loving Jesus. We're loving Jesus. Each week during this series, we have tried to let you hear someone's story of uh, their serving people and loving people. And today, I want you to hear from Ashley Nardone. Ashley, come on up. Welcome, Ashley, as she comes to share with you. Hi, I'm Ashley, and I attend Impact with my husband, Evan, and our two children. Uh, You've probably seen me chasing our son in the hallways while uh, holding my usually always smiling daughter. Uh, When I was young, I remember early Sunday morning sitting and watching my mom make the most delicious mac and cheese. Uh, She would teach me step by step how to make it. And I would tell her, I would look at her and say, oh boy, I can't wait to get home and eat that macaroni and cheese. And all at once, lovingly and sternly, she'd look at me and say, it's not for you. See, my mom served on the hospitality committee of a church I grew up in in Georgia for as long as I can remember and she was making mouth-watering meals for anyone in need. I didn't realize at the time that she was igniting the passion that would later become uh, one of my serving abilities. About 10 years ago, I was listening to a pastor at a church that I belonged to in college, and he preached a series titled Transform People, Transform the World. Uh, My then boyfriend and now husband was sitting in the congregation with me, and it was a statement that really resonated with us. We began to make are really major life decisions based on the, off that statement. Uh, we began to focus more and more on relationships. Uh, I was an educator, and we were both in athletics. We were constantly working, reminding ourselves that we were transforming the young athletes that we influenced every day. About three years ago, our season changed, and we joined Impact. I immediately started serving at Steel uh, City Kids. Occasionally, my husband and my kids will come and help me set up for services. And one day, my husband, Evan, stopped and asked me, why are you here? What do you get out of this? I almost gave him one of those, oh, you know, I do it for the kids. Then I thought about it. It's truly because every day I'm there, I'm able to immerse myself in literal childlike faith. It's uncomplicated, joyful, without any preconceptions, well, except for the fact that they know I'll have candy. It's just love for our Savior, and it's so beautiful. It's so evident to me when Jesus preached in Matthew that if we all want to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must be like children. My son Enzo looks forward to the services where he gets to help mommy set up for the kids. He sometimes tries to play the game or make the craft or even eat the candy, and I have to sternly and lovingly look at him and say, it's not for you. I hope I'm igniting the same passion for serving and building relationships, not only with my children, but with your sons, daughters, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, and all the children that I'm able to serve at our church. Thank you so much for allowing me to serve your children. I have two comments. I've heard her give that three times. I'm really wanting some mac and cheese (laughs) today. But I also want to say that, Ashley, I believe you and Evan are igniting in your children that same passion for serving because 
parents when you serve and your kids see you serve, that helps them to decide to do that. And so, Ashley, thank you. And thanks to Evan for being on the worship team. Thank to you both. And I just want to say, well done. Well done. And again, Jesus is saying that your love for Jesus is measured by your love for people. It's measured by how you serve and love people. And I said that there's a beauty in that because it's easy to understand and it's easy to do. But there's also a danger in that. There's a danger in that. You see, the danger is that when we love God and we do something by loving people, when we love like Jesus, we'll be treated like Jesus was treated. And that can be a difficult thing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. While trying to love people by serving them, you have been despised and rejected by people just like Jesus was. And you have been hurt and insulted and criticized and unappreciated and taken advantage of just like Jesus. And when that happens, we find ourselves wanting to pray like Jesus prayed. You know, Lord, if there is any way that you can do this without me, please take this cup from me. And some have gotten so hurt that they just don't want to do it anymore. They just don't want to do it anymore. They avoid hurting like Jesus by avoiding serving like Jesus. And all of us who serve understand this because we have been hurt. But our hurt doesn't change what Jesus said. It doesn't change what he said. And the most sobering part of story number three is it's not a story at all. It's not a story at all. You see, the first two stories, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids, or it will be like a wealthy man entrusting his wealth to the servants. Those were illustrations. But story three, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is what's going to happen. It's not an illustration. It's a prophecy. It's what will happen when Jesus returns. And he says that on that day, there'll be just two groups. Just two groups of people. And one group goes into eternal punishment and the other goes into eternal joy. One group receives Jesus' pleasure and the other Jesus' disappointment. And according to what Jesus said, there is only one difference between the two groups. The only difference between the two groups is one group served and the other didn't. The only difference between the two groups of people is what they agreed to do for Jesus and what they refused to do for Jesus. Now hear me clearly. The Bible tells us that Jesus forgives us of our sins when we trust in him. 
It tells me that my forgiveness is based on undeserved kindness and the undeserved mercy and grace that I get from God. My forgiveness is not something that I can earn. It's not something that I deserve. It's not something I receive as a result of doing good things for God. But Jesus says that somehow there's this connection. He says serving him is so important that some people may miss out on heaven because they refuse to do it. And I don't completely understand it. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 how to avoid the problem. You see, if I'm loving people by doing something and using what God has given to me, then I will be ready when he comes and I will be loving God. All of those things will be true. I said earlier that I'm praying for revival in our community as we move into our new location. But you know, I'm not just praying for people outside the church to be drawn to a closer relationship with Jesus. I'm praying, I'm praying for revival inside our church. For revival amongst us. I'm praying for revival in the hearts of people who used to serve Jesus actively and somehow quit or stepped away. I'm praying that they will again begin doing something to serve people that they will use the talents that they have that God has given to them so that God can love others through them I'm praying for a revival of compassion as all of us really begin to love and serve serve others even the least among us and the most unpopular in our society the way that Jesus loves people I'm praying for a revival in generosity that people will use the funds that God has given to them to love and serve people. And I'm praying for a revival of our priorities that will move past uh, the thought that the things that our society thinks are important for us uh, are really important when they have nothing to do with the future when they have no lasting value for us or our kids that will move past that and that our priority will begin to be to love God and do something by loving people. Today is the last day of this series and I don't want you to just hear it. Let's do this. Let's do this. Please Let God love you and let God love others through you because your love for Jesus is going to be measured by your love for people. I close with this last verse from Galatians chapter 5. Start with verse 13. It says, my friends, you were chosen to be free. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do anything you want. Use it as an opportunity to serve each other with love. All that the law says can be summed up in the command to love others as much as you love yourself. It's not just a suggestion. It's a commandment. And the last part of Matthew 25 isn't a story or an illustration. It's a preview of what will happen when Jesus comes again. And when he separates everyone from all nations into two groups, the group that serves and loves people and the group that refuses to serve and love people, you got to be in the right group. May we all be in the group that loves Jesus by loving people. May we all hear him say, 
well done. Well done, good and faithful servants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the fact that you give to us chance after chance after chance to get it right, that you give to us the ability to be used by you to love others. And now, Father, would you help us not just to hear these words, but to do what you say, what you ask. And Father, I pray for each person here, for those who are still healing from hurt inflicted by people who they were trying to serve and love. I pray, Father, that you will give them healing, but that you will give them the motivation to continue loving you by serving people. And Father, we pray that as a result, each one of us and our church collectively will have a lifetime impact on people. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.